This episode is dedicated to A. Raymond Johnson, Ray Estanislao, and Romeo P. for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. I'm not just talking about myself or Southpaw. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it. Sometimes, we just need a reminder. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. Find links to our Patreon and our store at southpawpod.com. This is part one of my conversation with Austin Lucas. If you don't want to wait for part two, it's available now on Patreon. So it sounds like a lot of your direct activism started after martial arts then. I mean, I've been like an activist for like uh, off and on, you know, like, I mean, I've run like pages to prisoner, not run, but I've been part of pages to prisoners, uh, like um, collectives and, and food, not bombs and, you know, like all sorts of different shit. Like I've, I've been an anti-fascist since like I was born basically. And did you help start the training collective that you're in? Yeah. I mean, I was the impetus for it. There was a really serious need for it because like we had like white supremacists in our community, very actively intimidating, um, you know, like, um, BIPOC and, um, LGBTQIA and activists and, you know what I mean? Like everybody basically. So, um, there was a really big need for it. And like, so there wasn't really anybody who was already a coach and I was like already like the third coach at my gym. And so like, I basically was just like, I'm going to do this. And I just started like all the people that were working to like keep these like events safe. I just started training them, you know, like, and then we ended up getting a space and like all that stuff. So probably you see this in Europe where it's just full of people who have the same radical politics you do, or at least create a safe space. I think that there's a, a pretty good tradition in the U S now, or there's at least a few gyms in the U S like, especially on the East coast that are very much like, um, come from like the, the very open and like left, um, thought process, mostly run by like ex punks, um, who like come from like the radical left side of punk and like got into Muay Thai and like, and now have gyms. I mean, like my favorite gym in the world, almost it's a gym called eight limbs Academy. Like their head coach is like a very old dear friend of mine. Like he played in hardcore bands. Like I slept on his floor, like repeatedly many times, like our bands used to play together and stuff. And like, now he's like the head coach of this gym, eight limbs Academy. And it's a commercial gym, but like, it's so full of like, leftists and like you know trans students and like BIPOC and like it's just like so full of positive cool people that like no chuds go there 
You know, it's like, it's like some of their best fighters are like openly trans, openly queer. They've got like more women like fighters than they do men fighters. And like they're badasses everywhere they go they're They fucking kick ass, you know, like, and it's like, it's just such a positive, cool gym. And like, they're not the only ones, but they're like the one that I always point to. I'm like, that's the gym. That's the model of how to make, you know, like something cool. And like, he's actually like in a lot of ways, the person that like I most look up to because he's all about just like the positivity of it. This is Sam. This is Austin. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have anti-fascist musician and Muay Thai coach, Austin Lucas. Hi, Austin. Hey, Sam. How you doing? You know. Hanging tough. Yeah. It's a tough question to answer. I would say it's just kind of like Groundhog's Day over here in the U.S. And personally. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's relatively like that here, too. It's like it's become uh, more and more like Groundhog's Day as the cold weather has come in, you know? So, like, the spring and summer, like, after, I'd say, like, once it got to be June, things were relatively normal here. Like, relatively. Obviously, there's, like, no normal, I don't think, you know, like, right now. But as opposed to, like, I think what it was, as opposed to what it was like from, like, the beginning of March until then, and as opposed to what it's like in the United States, from what I've been able to tell, uh, I'd say that our summer was pretty uh, rad. I, I I feel bad saying that, and it's also weird saying that, considering how like not a normal summer it was. But by comparison, I think that Europe had like a very nice summer. It was kind of delightful by comparison, I'd say. And for people who are listening who don't know where you are, you are in Germany. You're normally based out of the U.S., but you kind of got stuck in Germany, right? Yeah, I mean, roundabout way. Uh, I'm my partner is German. And, uh, we kind of swap continents a lot of the time. And, uh, basically we were here when, uh, the pandemic started and we were here when, uh, Trump sent out the tweet saying that they were going to bar travel from Europe to the United States. And, um, basically in that time, I kind of had to reassess like what I wanted to do. I was getting ready, literally like I was flying home. He tweeted that out on a Friday and I was flying home on Monday and I had to like, kind of decide what I wanted to do in the course of those days. And by the time, like, you know, uh, things had kind of been figured out about what his tweet even really meant, I already figured out that probably staying in Europe was a smart move, uh, considering the administration that was in power. So then let's get into you and what you do as a musician slash artist, because you're basically cut from the same cloth as this podcast a Venn diagram of seemingly disparate interests that are actually intricately connected. Your new album, Alive in the Hot Zone, speaks to that interconnectedness. So can you tell us more about the album and the process of writing it so far away from home? I think that 
it provided me with a certain amount of clarity um, just because I don't think I was feeling the anxiety of the pandemic the way that people in the United States might have been. And don't get me wrong, there was a lot of anxiety, especially like the first month, like it was, you know, very uncertain and we had no idea where things were going. And, but uh, I was sort of able to realize pretty quickly that I was in a much better position um, just based upon like, uh, you know, rate of rates of infection and, um, um, you know, fatality rates as well. Um, so, uh, it kind of allowed me to see things from a different angle and, um, from like a much less like immersed and anxiety riddled sort of, uh, angle. And then of course, like when, um, the, like the uprising began, like in the wake of, you know, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, uh, uh, happened, um, that created a lot of, uh, anxiety with me also just mostly because I felt like I was kind of letting down my community by not being there as a resource. Um, but also it allowed for me to observe it and really dissect my feelings. And again, another way that was kind of like, um, I don't want to say like disconnected because I felt very connected to it, but it was, it, it was a different way of experiencing things that were happening in the United States as an American. Were you planning to write a new album anyway, or did all these events kind of inspire you to write this album? Uh, I already had a record written, actually, that I was going to record uh, when I got home from being here in Europe. Uh, I was getting ready to make a record with uh, these dudes, um, John Paul White and Ben Tanner, who like have this operation called Single Lock Records. And um, yeah, John Paul White's famous because he was in a band called the civil wars and ben tanner is sort of famous because he was in the alabama shakes and so i was kind of getting ready to make this record with my band and these guys like uh a very specific record um and uh that kind of got completely thrown away because there was no way for me to come back and record um and then also um you know i started writing more songs that were not necessarily about the things that the other record was going to be about. And there was some crossover because like I had been feeling, you know, uh, like I needed to, I mean, I, I write a lot of, um, or I infuse a lot of politics into, um, my lyrics. Um, at least I would say that my standpoint is that of like, uh, coming from like a radical leftist, uh, or anarchist perspective, but, like, I don't always like, I'm not always as overt. And so I was already kind of trending towards, there were a couple of songs on there that were a little bit more overt, but this was really a moment where um, I started writing a lot more songs. And what I was talking about was like very much more direct than I had been in a long time. And like, and the times that were um, upon us made it feel very urgent. So I sort of all of these songs kind of came out of me or most of them, I should say just very quickly, which is not normal for me. Like writing, you know, uh, 10 songs, like just bam, 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 bam is not really something that I do very often. Um, and yeah, so, uh, that was very different. And, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, not expected, totally a weird thing, just a, um, 
you know, the confluence of all of these events happening and the fact that I had to shift gears over and over again, like, I mean, the conversations that I was having with my booking agents and like my management and like all that stuff is just, you know, like every single time we talked and sometimes it would only be like from day to day, our plans were changing. So I realized that it would probably be okay if I completely changed my plans. And in the end I did. And this record just kind of sprang out very quickly. Like, you know, I started writing it in March and like by the time, like we were done recording it in June, you know, and that's very fast for me. Had you recorded anything in Germany before or did you have to scramble to find musicians or find a studio and start from scratch? Uh, well, I, I stumbled into the studio that I made the record in because uh, I was trying to do a live stream and basically I wanted it to be very professional sounding and I was going to record like a live album basically via live stream. And uh, like, I had another studio booked and at the last minute they didn't want to do it because of COVID-19. Like they were like, no, we're not going to have anybody in here in our studio right now. And and I totally understood. Um, but they pulled the plug at the last minute. And so I was trying to find somewhere else where I could move the, um, the stream and I found them and like, it just turned out that the head engineer there is just a genius and we hit it off really well. And, uh, Next thing I knew, we were making a record together. So does that mean then all the instruments in there, all the backup vocals, was that all you? No. Uh, I mean, I do sing a lot of the backup vocals and I do a lot of the guitars, but a lot of the guitars are actually Ollie, the producer. Um, <clears throat> he kind of became de facto band leader for this. And also uh, the second engineer that he has there, this guy Toby, played drums on it. And then Ollie played bass. Uh, on most of the, the tracks, although we had another guy named Tom who came in for a few. Um, yeah, but basically it was just kind of a band of three uh, and just the people who worked there because, of course, we didn't want to be working with a lot of people because, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. We want to keep our circle very, very close, you know. So um, that was like one of the reasons why we ended up doing the record, too, because like they just they were like, hey, we're bored and we want to make a record. Uh, you know, and we really, really like you a lot. Is it possible you want to come back here and make a record? And I was like, funny enough, I've got all these songs I've been working on. And we, you know, that's basically, I mean, I know that sounds like uh very, I don't know, haphazard, but that's kind of how it was. Like, we were just like, oh, let's do this. Let's see how it goes. And like, it just happened and it worked out. Kind of like how it happens in movies about making an album, right? It never happens the way it does in real life because it's so like spontaneous. But I guess that's how you did it this time around. Actually, that's so fucking spot on. Like, because I every record I've ever done has been like not every record, but a lot of my records, especially the last like five records, have been very meticulously planned out. And like, you know, I knew who I was going to produce, who who what production team I was going to use, and you know, what studio and like all this stuff. And like, you know, I mean, my last record I made with Steve Albini and like Will Johnson and like, you know, it's like, you don't just like call them up on the spur of a moment and be like, Hey, let's make an album. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, that like took a year of planning to make that happen. And then, you know, here I am heading into, uh, you know, like six months of planning to make a record with these other guys. And all of a sudden that just like got tossed out the window and we were literally flying by the seat of our pants. Like, the first single came out like two weeks after we finished recording the record. 
Is there a main track that you feel really embodies this album? Uh, I mean, I, I feel like uh, there are a couple of tracks that embody the album, but in different aspects. Because, like, you know, um, for example, like, you know, Already Dead is like very much a confrontation of like the types of conversations that we have with um former friends or even allies and uh, family members who are very much taking a turn towards authoritarian fascism and kind of watching that happen uh, in real time. I mean, I feel like, you know, almost everybody that I know has had these types of conversations where it's like, you know, hey, what the fuck is going through your head? I can see, you know, like what's happening and how do you not realize like where it is that this path is leading down, you know, like, like where this path is going, how do you not see that? And, um, I feel like that song, you know, very much like to me encapsulates a lot about the record because like, you know, we're having these hard conversations with people and like, I'm the kind of person who tries to be compassionate and empathetic with almost everybody. And like, uh, so I have a very, very, difficult time when people you know like uh repeatedly become aggressive with me and refuse to like listen to the things that i'm trying to say to them and communicate to them um so uh and i i just imagine what that's like for other people who whose reptile brain is like kind of really firing all the time you know like and they're having to like deal with the anxiety of like watching like family members just like slip down this like you know, awful path, you know, um, um, the other song that I think really speaks to it. Um, there's like a lot of isolation. I feel like on, uh, the song, anyone that's on the record. Um, because like that song really just deals with like, how is it like, what do you think about when you're by yourself and you have no interaction with anybody else? And like, you know, you have to kind of go through the motions of every day. And like, I don't know, for me, I, I, when I'm in those moments and those quiet moments, especially when there's so many of them and they're kind of uh, happening um, over and over again in a kind of groundhog day scenario. Um, I really think about like the things that I did, what are my priorities and why do I want these things? And why do I want to still be here? Why do I do what I'm doing? Why do I keep doing what I'm doing? And like, you know, the reason is, is because at the end, it's like, I love the fight of life. Like I love to be alive and I, I, I don't necessarily want to struggle as much as I struggle. Like I would prefer it if things were a little bit easier, but the fact is, is that I'm never going to stop struggling. So I have to like, kind of be at peace with that. I have to learn to love that struggle. Right. You know, like I have to learn to love the fight. Now, can you tell us about the brand of music you do and its political history? Uh, well, I mean, that's a hard one to talk about because like I am kind of a country music uh, musician, um, but I also come from like the anarcho hardcore world and the world of punk. And so like oftentimes, like uh, if it's somebody who's coming from the punk world, they will call me folk punk. Um, because if they don't really know how else to classify me, because I'm like a dude with an acoustic guitar, uh, singing songs and I'm a punk person, um, or, you know, they'll call me country music and that can be a good or a bad thing because it might have some stank on it because clearly 
not everybody likes country music, especially people who are from like the left, you know? Um, and you know, there's a lot to be said about that. Like this is a, there's a lot to unpack when we talk about country music. Um, so I'll very briefly just say that like, I'm a punk person. I've already said that I come from like a family, um, where radical politics were infused into my, like every fiber of my being from the time I was like born basically. Um, and like, and so, uh, but I also come from a rural area. My dad is a folk musician and a bluegrass musician. He like has written songs for famous country singers. So I have like a lot of country music in my, you know, like in kind of every fiber of my being, because you can't be from a rural area in the United States and like not have country music in your blood in like your DNA. You know, like, and it doesn't matter if you're from Indiana or you're from Alabama or if you're from California, you know, like it's just everywhere, you know, like it's, it's everywhere. Like, especially like when, I I mean, at least when I was growing up, like in the eighties and nineties, like I couldn't walk into a gas station without hearing country music, even if I hadn't like had it in my house, you know, like it was literally everywhere else, you know? So, um, and I, I appreciate the hell out of country music. So bringing that back, like um, the history of country music is very uh, misunderstood. Uh, and, you know, there's so many different ways that it's misunderstood, but I'll just go ahead and say that like some of the very earliest country singers, like, um, and I really like, uh, you know, I wanted to get a little bit more into depth with this, but I'm just going to go ahead and like kind of uh, go over like a very brief and accessible history. But like, um, you know, there's like Harry McClintock is like one of the most famous early country singers. Uh, and he does the song Big Rock Candy Mountain. I don't know if you know the song, but he was a member of the IWW. So like you have a wobbly <laughs> singing one of the most famous, like most influential and like recognizable country songs from like the early part of the 20th century. Right. Like, you know, if you move down the line, you have Woody Guthrie who like, you know, he wrote this land is your land, which is not a patriotic hymn, you know, like meant for like the, like that was meant to be co-opted by, you know, patriotic flag waving neoliberal America, you know, uh, He's been sort of pushed aside to be like a folk musician because like, you know, he was still active in the like in the 40s and 50s after like the when the, you know, the Red Scare happened. And so um, they kind of like rather than admit that like this was part of the like history of country music, they sort of like moved it over to this like commie subsect and just decided to call it folk music. And if you want, we could talk about like folk music and how people consider to like they understand there's an understanding or a consensus that folk music is associated with the left um and you know maybe it is important to say that like folk music is country music <laughs> where does one discern where it stops being country and it becomes folk because it sounds very similar i would say that you can't until the late 60s you know like i would say that like country music and folk music were ostensibly the same exact thing and were mostly recognized as the same thing up until like the late sixties, you know, maybe even, okay, maybe it started really in like the late fifties because, you know, Pete Seeger was a very famous like purveyor and he had a very famous TV show. And then he, you know, he got blacklisted because he was, you know, like a leftist. 
Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with entertainers, um, you know, becoming, uh, cast aside and, you know, uh, and thrown away, um, during like, you know, the McCarthy era, uh, you know, during this like red scare of the blacklist and stuff like that. But like, this is, I think where it starts, you know, like, but like really country music was just music made by poor people forever. And like, you know, the first, like from the end of the 19th century, all the way up through until like, you know, the middle part of the 20th century, I mean, country music was being made just by poor people from the country, you know, like literally like, you know, so much of like, of the most important formative, like portions of country music come from like labor strikes, like in, you know, like from coal mining towns in like, in Appalachia, you know, like come from like plantations of like, of, you know, former African descended slaves, you know, like, I mean, there's no, like, you know, like basically poor white and black people, like are the people who formed country music, who like brought it forth into the world. And it wasn't until like, you know, they really realized how much money could be made off of it. And then it wasn't until they realized, you know, that there's a force for change in entertainment, you know what I mean? Like, and they realized that they could, cash in by being a counterbalance to the leftist side of that that things really changed with country music and that's like basically in the 1960s in 68 specifically richard nixon was very important in like the changing of the guard basically from country music music being like music for the people and therefore sort of apolitical in a lot of ways you know like other than when it was directly being political um to like becoming something that was meant for this like you know blue collar uh you know like white conservative america you know like and it started actually i mean like uh it was actually really governor wallace um but then directly afterwards richard nixon and this is like pretty easily researched if anybody wants to go on google like you can find stuff about this like super quickly was it part of their campaigns or something Yes, yes. They were using country music as part of their campaigns. Kind of like how Reagan used religion in his campaigns. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very similar. Uh, You know, they were looking to, you know, basically steal white Democratic voters, you know, like who already like who money, many of them were in unions, you know, like and um, many of them were like uh, ostensibly like not. I mean, maybe none of them were not none of them, but maybe not all of them were leftists, so to speak, but they like, they had been the beneficiaries of like New Deal, you know, Roosevelt like policies. Um, and like those things were very, very popular. So they, they were like trying to figure out how to separate those people from the Democratic Party and like, and from like, you know, you know, liberal socialism, you know, like, and, um, one of, there are several different tactics that that they used but one of them was like by basically uh pushing country music and the narrative of it being like this thing that's about that you know what i mean like about the like white rural experience and by default it also appealed to like the white suburban experience as well so i mean again like this is such a a big big thing you know, like to talk about, there's a lot to unpack when we talk about country music and the effect of country music on, uh, 
uh, American culture and why country music was like sort of ripe for the picking, what set the stage for it. But like, rest assured, country music has got very serious leftist roots and like they can be traced back from the very beginning, you know, like by like by open anarchists and communists you know, like being part of them and all the way up through like in the 60s and 70s. I mean, you have Chris Christopherson, you know, like who was a socialist and you have Willie Nelson, who's like more of like kind of a progressive leftist, but still, you know, part of the left. Um, and like, you know, Steve Earle, uh, you know, like really made a mark in the 80s and he was a, a very open socialist, you know, mm-hmm. like and now like, you know, in the world that we live in, uh, or in the realm of music today, you have a, a movement called Americana music, which kind of spawned out of the cowpunk movement and the alternative, and then later the alternative country music. And now it's like, uh, sorry, the alternative country music movement. And now it's kind of become Americana, which is a catch-all for like all different types of American roots music, including country music and rock and roll. And like, but it's basically like for like people who are actually on the left and like progressives. Like there are fans who are conservative in this, you know, like world, but they, um, they're not necessarily the like most common person in the fandom of these, of artists from that genre. If that makes sense. They just appreciate good music. Yeah. I mean, honestly, dude, like a lot of my fans, they, appreciate good music but they fucking hate what i stand for and like you know i mean i get a lot of shit i've lost thousands of fans due to posts like i mean i've done tours with huge like top level country music artists where i've gained like really like a lot of basic country fans i mean i toured with willie nelson and jamie johnson and even like lee bryce and brantley gilbert and all these you know kind of like yahoo pop country artists you know, like, and I gain fans, some of their fans, but those fans, they have evacuated my social media. And if they're listening to me still, they're doing it angrily. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw something similar to this, not to that effect, but something similar with a 90s band called Eve Six. Yeah. I think they came out on Twitter recently saying something about either socialism or unions or something like that. And then a bunch of people got shocked and upset and it became like this thing. But I'm sure they also picked up young followers who had never heard of them. But damn, that's bold. I'm surprised you six they uh <laughs> showing up. That's cool. Actually, that leads me to my next question because you already mentioned how politics and music was always around growing up for you. Was it just your dad or your whole family is very much interested? Oh no, in- both both I mean, not my whole family, but my mom also, yeah. Um, and like her sister, you know, and one of my dad's brothers also. I mean, they both come from like uh differing religious conservative religious backgrounds um so only some members of their family necessarily were uh into radical politics but you know they're you know very much products of the 60s you know um and yeah so they're they're both lefties what about music were they all musicians no my mom's actually a visual artist um so yeah she's still both my parents are actually still working artists which is really amazing i mean it's why i know that i can survive in the realm of making art, you know, uh, because I've got these great examples of people who have been working class musicians and, and artists, you know, like for my entire life and make no mistake. It's like my family are literally working class, like artistic people, 
because like we break our backs to get through, to get by, to do the things that we want to do. You know what I mean? It's like, it's such a serious hustle. Like, you know, like the amount of tour dates that my dad and I like both do to make a living, it's like, you know, it's substantial. And my mom is constantly working on art, doing like children's books and greeting cards and like different, you know, like uh, commission projects and all sorts of stuff. It's, I mean, you know. Yeah. Now, there was an article not too long ago about award-winning songwriters who had to drive Uber. <laughs> yeah. To just kind of like dispel this idea that you write an award-winning song and you're going to be rich and famous. But to agree with your point, it's not as glamorous as people think, unless you're like Beyonce or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that Beyonce has got a lot of problems too, but you know, they sure as heck aren't the kind of problems that poor people have. Yeah, yeah. They're probably <laughs> not like financial problems. They might have other types of problems. Yeah. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So that gives us the context of your politics, your music. What about martial arts then? How did that start? So I think I got into martial arts young, obviously, I don't want to say obviously, but uh, like a lot of children of the 80s um, uh, and before, I got into martial arts because of Bruce Lee um, and watching Bruce Lee movies. And uh, later, you know, like becoming obsessed with like Van Damme and Steven Seagal uh, movies also. And uh, so when I was young, I. I was, uh, I took Taekwondo and I basically did that for a couple of years. Um, I wasn't really all that into it. I mean, I was kind of into it. Like my friends also did it and we enjoyed it, but then like, so I've always been a singer and, and I was also simultaneously going to choir, um, and like performing in choral pieces and like operas and stuff like that. Like as a young person, I was in uh, the Jacobs School of Music, Indiana University Children's Choir. So like that took up a lot of time. And like when Wang having like no social life as a young person, you know what I mean? Like and having no time to watch cartoons or anything like that uh, versus like doing a lot of activities. I think mm, I think I chose to drop off of taekwondo because uh i could choose to like i wasn't allowed to quit opera and choir like my parents were like no you have to do this this is this is like a thing you have to do like that was like my piano lessons that like you know the equivalent you know what i mean like where kid does not want to do it kid does not give a crap about it wants to do everything else but parents are like no you have to do this because my dad, you know, being a professional singer and me showing a lot of aptitude for singing at a, from a very, very early age, wanted to make sure that I knew how to sing properly. And my dad learned how to sing in the church. And so, um, you know, my mom came from a, 
an Orthodox Jewish family. And my dad came from a very conservative Christian family. And neither of them wanted to force me into either one of the like um, religious uh, viewpoints. And uh, so they, but they wanted to make sure that I would get a classical singing education. And so my dad forced me into the school of music. And like, I wasn't allowed to quit until I was 13. But yeah, like, so I fell off with martial arts. And honestly, the way that I came back to martial arts was because of like, of anti-fascism and like years of abusing my body and needing to like uh, do something for my health, you know, like, and to like kind of come back because like I had a very um, tumultuous several years and um, where they like the kind of crescendoed when I um, quit smoking and this was in 2014 um, and like I had always had, uh, a generalized anxiety disorder, but I, it was undiagnosed and I didn't realize it. And for years, nicotine had been like acting as an antidepressant and I created all these receptors like in my brain to like, um, you know, to suck up that nicotine. And when I quit smoking, all those receptors were there with like nothing. And all of a sudden my, my generalized anxiety disorder just came roaring back to life in this like very extreme way. Um, and I really had to figure out how in the hell I was going to like survive. So I turned towards fitness, you know? Um, and first it was like walking really long walks. And I want to say, I don't know how deep you went back in my social media, but like I used to be 275 pounds and like you know i'm not at fighting weight right now but like you know i'm a welterweight when i fight (laughs) so like just to put that into perspective so i really like i you know i've been smoking two packs a day i was drinking a lot was that weight something that happened after you quit smoking no no actually i started losing weight almost immediately after i quit smoking because i started exercising more when I quit smoking. So, um, and yeah, I know a lot of people that when they quit smoking, they gain weight. Uh, but yeah, that didn't really happen for me. I think part of the reason why I was eating as much as I was is because my, uh, my health had been very negatively impacted by my smoking. Um, my voice was, um, dramatically reduced my capacity uh, to sing, um, my lung capacity, my breathing, Um, and like, you know, I didn't like standing up, uh, getting off the couch required, you know, like at least one arm as well as my legs, you know, um, walking upstairs, like I would stay at people's houses on tour, um, or at a hotel that didn't have a, an elevator. And they'd be like, you're on the third floor. And I would literally like in my mind, I would be like, fuck these people. Like I've got to walk upstairs. Oh my fucking God. You know, like, I mean, I dreaded stairs and like, I was very depressed. And since I was very depressed, I ate more and I gained more weight. I smoked more cigarettes and I drank more and I gained more weight. And, you know, when I quit smoking, I was depressed, but I was also anxious. So I became sort of more active. I don't know if that's, I mean, I don't know how many people that experienced that, but I definitely experienced that. I just became a lot more active. It sounded like you were stuck in a loop. So how'd you break that loop? I knew that all these things were awful for me. So I was like in a state of beating myself up for doing them too. So, um, I had gotten really sick. I finished a European tour. Um, 
2014, and it was April Fool's um, was the last day of the tour. And I remember it was in Brighton in the UK, and I was out on the balcony outside of the club smoking a cigarette with my UK publicist, and like I was really sick. And I was like, I don't think I can smoke, finish smoking the cigarette. And I like literally like flicked it and like, you know, like, and then walked inside and like played my set and like had to cut my set short because I was so ill. Um, and like flew home the next day. And that was the last cigarette I had is on April 1st in 2014. So like, and the reason why I quit was because that night when I went back to the hotel room, I hacked up this like enormous like monstrosity of phlegm and there was just a bunch of blood in it. Oh no. And I was just like, what are you doing? You fucking idiot. You've got to, you know, like you just got to stop, you know, like, and I did like, that was not the last, okay. I said that's the last cigarette I had. That was my last cigarette as a smoker. I have, a couple of times while drunk on New Year's Eve had like a couple of hits of the cigarette, but like never like measurable smoking ever again. And then you got into fitness that was helping you with your anxiety. And then what's next? Well, uh, so when I lived in the Czech Republic, uh, I mean, I have been friends with a lot of anti-racists and anti-fascists for my entire life and been one. Um, and when I was in the Czech Republic, a lot of the anti-fascists that I was pals with all, uh, you know, trained Muay Thai. What were you doing in the Czech Republic? Uh, yeah, my brother lives there. He's got three kids now too. So, um, he had opened the bar and I, that was what I did. Like before I became a professional musician where like that paid all my bills, I was a bartender and a bouncer and a, you know, bar back. Like, so, um, so he opened up a bar there in, in Prague and he invited me to come and help him out and work for him. And I was like, sure. Cause I, you know, the band I was playing in wasn't very popular and, uh, I was in a relationship I wasn't super happy in. Um, and so I just sort of beat it and headed to the Czech Republic and I stayed there for five years. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really, honestly, that's where I became a professional musician because like I ended up writing a bunch of lyrics for this, um, this Czech emo pop band that like, um, they were like a gold selling band in the Czech Republic. And so like I signed like this publishing deal with, uh, their record label and like, I got a bunch of money in the front and then I got a bunch of royalty money also. And that was basically like totally unexpected while I was basically unemployed like, you know, their manager was like a acquaintance of mine. And he just like called me up out of the blue and was like, Hey man, how would you like to like write a bunch of uh, songs in English for this band? And I was like, uh, sure. You know, like, and then I did that and I made money and then I never, like, I never worked a real job ever again. I had a couple of bartending shifts, uh, at one place for a little while when I was living in Gainesville, Florida. Um, uh, and yeah, I had a security shift at one club. Um, and then I also was the karaoke jockey every once in a while, but that was mostly for fun and free drinks. So like, but yeah, that's since 2006 is when I like stopped, you know, working a regular job. So you were in Czech Republic. A lot of the friends you had were into Muay Thai. Uh, so they had invited me to come and train with them over and over and over again. And I had always said, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I want to do that. But, you know, I just didn't. And mostly because I was intimidated um, because I was 
uh, I'd always been overweight, um, my whole life. And, and as I entered my late twenties, like my metabolism slowed down and like, it just accelerated, you know? Um, and so I was very lazy and, uh, really, you know, wanted to do it. And I had it in my head that I was going to do it, had in my head, I was going to do it over and over again, you know, kind of like telling myself that next week or, you know, next month I'm going to do it this new year's, like I made a resolution or whatever, you know, a couple of times that I was going to start training. And then when I like, you know, started going on a real health journey, like where I was like actually serious about losing weight. Um, another friend of mine was like, Hey, uh, I'm training Muay Thai at this gym. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, fuck yeah. And you know, like basically that was it. I made like, uh, um, yeah, I, I made plans to go and train with them at their gym and I, and I walked through those doors and, uh, yeah, that's how it happened. And I basically started going once a week. And then after a couple months, I was going two or three times a week. And, you know, by the end of the first year, I lived there, you know, when I was not on tour. So you fell in love with it right away? Did you enjoy it from the first day? I mean, yes, I fell in love with the idea of it right away. And, uh, I think I had a hard time. Um, and I know that like some of the people from my original gym that I still train at and I still do sometimes coach at, uh, when, like when I get back to Bloomington, you know, like, or where I, when I am in Bloomington, um, one of the gyms that I coach at and the, is the gym that I started at and trained at, but it's, it's hard because it's a cop gym and like, uh, so, and it's in Southern Indiana and, uh, you know, the owner of the gym, um, you know, is a person who, uh, I respect in many ways, but do not agree with, uh, many things. And, you know, he is, a an officer. He's, uh, the, um, you know, uh, he's the head of the Bloomington SWAT team, you know, like, so he's very entrenched in, uh, in, you know, working as a police officer. Uh, and so a lot of cops, like I said, it's a cop gym and a lot of police officers there. Um, which means that like, as a overweight, anxious, and uh, sometimes effeminate, uh, like punk person, I didn't feel welcome there. And I didn't feel like, like I loved the training and I wanted to do it, but like, I didn't feel like it was never a fit. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, it's not a fit, you know, like it's, it's the only place to train Muay Thai in Bloomington, Indiana. So your friends in Czech Republic were already training Muay Thai, but it wasn't until you came back to the States that you actually trained yourself. Correct. Yeah. So then let's talk about that. Where did you grow up? Was it mostly in Indiana? Yeah. Um, I lived in Indiana until I turned 18. Uh, so I grew up in Bloomington, outside of Bloomington, Indiana. Um, the closest town is uh, called New Unionville. It's got a post office and an IGA. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's outside of Bloomington. <clears throat> so I grew up in the woods. Uh, and uh, yeah, Bloomington is a, a university town. Uh, that's where IU is. So, um, so it's, it's kind of a, a beacon for subculture in Indiana, but it's still in Southern Indiana. 
So, um, and yeah, I grew up there um, until I was 18. And then I moved to Ohio because um, I was playing in a band and, um, you know, there was a little bit more of a, a scene for what I was doing in Ohio. And uh, so we decided to move to Dayton, uh, which is a really weird place to decide to move to. Um, but we did, and I lived there for three years and then I moved back to Bloomington for a short time before moving to San Francisco for a year. Um, and then back to Bloomington for a short time before moving to San, or sorry, before moving to the Czech Republic for five years. Um, and then I came back to the States, um, and I lived a bunch of places for like five years before I moved basically to Nashville. Tennessee, where I was for, uh, you know, a few years before moving back to Bloomington. And then when I moved back to Bloomington, which was in 2015, that's when I started training. And something you just mentioned is the IGA. And I think for some listeners, depending on where they live, they might not have ever heard of that. And this is the Independent Grocers Alliance, right? Which might speak to that region. I think because of Trump, we have these bad ideas about Indiana and rural America. Well, Mike Pence is from <laughs> is from Indiana. You know what I mean? Like, so it makes sense that people would like think of Indiana, especially in a shitty light, considering the last four years that we've had. So then you tell me about Indiana. What are some of the good things that we should know about it? Well, I mean, I'm from Southern Indiana, um, and where I'm from is uh, very beautiful because there's um, big rolling hills and lakes and uh, a lot of forest. Um, and, uh, it's like, it's basically like where if you were a hippie and you were from like the Midwest, like, I'm not saying that you would inevitably definitely end up in Bloomington, but there's a very high likelihood that in the sixties or seventies, you would end up there or Ann Arbor or Lawrence, Kansas, or like Madison, Wisconsin, you know, it's like. It's it's one of those quintessential college towns, which like provides this sort of oasis of, you know, like of art and culture and like and, uh, you know, leftist thought, social, you know, what I mean, like forward thinking uh, that the other parts of the state don't necessarily have. So like that's how I ended up there. I mean, I was like literally conceived on a commune in like a holler in the <laughs> middle of the woods, which is a very distinctly like leftist hippie thing. And also a very distinctly redneck thing to be able to say. What's the music scene like in Indiana? Does it have a unique history and sound? I mean, you know, I'm from the town that uh, the Coog is from. I don't know if you know what that means. Mm -mm. Do you know who John Cougar Mellencamp is? Yes. <laughs> you know, Little Diddy by Jack and Diane. Yeah. So yeah, uh, he uh, he's from Bloomington. Like he lives in Bloomington. Uh, so that's you know that's Bloomington is sort of known for for that. Um, but I think that Bloomington's mark on the world of music is like um, like there's a a group of indie record labels called secretly group that are based out of Bloomington, Indiana. And it's a label called secretly Canadian, a label called Jag Jaguar and a label called dead oceans. And like on that record label, like, like group is like, for example, do you know who Bonnevar is? Yeah. 
he's like one of the biggest indie like singer songwriters you know of the last 20 years like he's on jag jaguar so he's like a secretly group artist and like um there's a lot of like of indie music um that has come out of that region and that has also been released on record labels out of that region and then there's like um there has been always a very strong punk community in indiana um and in the midwest in general i mean like whether it like be like you know i mean from the beginning like you know there were punk bands from like the mid to late 70s already in bloomington that were active um and uh you know like in the music scene the reason why my dad moved there was because like he was able to do so well in indiana um as like a musician um you know i mean he he moved to all over the united states dragging my family um with development deals with record labels and stuff like that but the place where he like made his mark and like made you know like a, the majority of his living was in indiana um so there was always there's always been room for you know music from you know like uh an alternative space and when you were talking about the umbrella of country music and you talked about how folk is also infused into that what about bluegrass i know it's more of like a kentucky thing but is that also part of like indiana music oh yes i mean absolutely bluegrass is known as being the kentucky you know music uh as being typically from Kentucky, but you know, bluegrass like is really typically born out of, um, you know, mountain music, um, and born out of like the songs of like, um, struggle from coal miners and like, and former slaves. Um, so like, you know, bluegrass is like a melding of several things. It's definitely a style of music that is, is part of country music, the the family of country music, and therefore uh, folk music also. But where I'm from, like, is um, a huge stronghold for bluegrass music. In fact, the Bean Blossom um, Bill Monroe Bluegrass Festival happens, like, you know, very near to where I'm from. And Bill Monroe is the person who invented bluegrass. So, like, my region is very, uh, has a, very deep roots of bluegrass. You mentioned living in the Czech Republic. What is it like in the Czech Republic? I mean, that's just like such a broad question. It's like, what what is the Czech Republic like? Uh, it's um, you know, it's a it's a former Soviet satellite country, um, but it's in Central Europe, um, which means that you know, uh, post Soviet collapse. Um, Russia doesn't necessarily have as much influence over it as some of its neighbors. Um, you know, it was not, it was, it was, I would say not an early joiner to the EU, but it was pretty like, you know, they joined while I was there. I moved there in 2003. That was the year that they joined the EU. Um, and, uh, so they, they were part of it. You know, if, if a second class, like a first rung second class EU, um, country. Um, but you know, the thing that's really, uh, important to know about, like, for example, Prague, where I lived is that it survived both world wars without being bombed. Um, and so it's the only major metropolitan medieval downtown that didn't get decimated by either of world, either world war. 
That makes sense why people always visit there when they want to see some of the oldest parts of Europe. I always hear people going to Prague. Yeah, definitely. It is like a major tourist hub. It's it when I was living there, it was a major um Hollywood like location filming hub. Um like so, you know, because it like I said, you know, it's pristine. It's still there. And not only that, but like all the tourist dollars have have um allowed for it to be like repainted and all the plaster to be put back up, you know, post uh, you know, Soviet collapse. So, um, you know, it, it really is a beautiful city. Uh, and the Czech Republic is a very, like a very interesting place. And to talk about like what the Czech Republic is like, is like more than a podcast. But, um, my experience with the Czech Republic is this, um, you know, like a lot of places, like everywhere I've been in Europe and I've been most places in Europe, um, there, are like very active uh members of you know different radical communities um they're most assuredly fascist um and um within that is like the political infrastructure and will to combat it um and you know the Czech Republic while being very different than for example uh Germany and like their activist community is different in many ways um, then here in Germany, um, they are, uh, um, very much like, um, concerned with this type of stuff. And so they have a lot of alternative, um, um, sport clubs, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, uh, that's basically, you know, my experience in the Czech Republic was, um, one of like, I would say punk and rock and roll indulgence because like while I was part of like uh radical and leftist communities, I was more, I would say an entertainer. Um, and like, and I was mostly just partying and like hanging out with my friends at that time. Um, I had, I think that I'd sort of fallen out of leftist politics, at least being an activist in that time period. And that extended like into my like probably mid thirties, where I was, uh, I would say laying dormant in a way like, um, uh, but yeah, that, um, the Czech Republic is a place that allowed for me to make a lot of connections with people that I still am in contact with. And a lot of people who I do train with now. Is the government there more left-leaning than the U S as far as like providing social safety nets and stuff like that. Every government in Europe is more left than the U S in that regard. <laughs> I mean, that's like not even, I mean, I mean, even like fucking Hungary and Poland, which are like becoming increasingly reactionary and, and like authoritarian are still more left to the left of the United States in that regard. Like, I think that like, you know, the, the thing that like I often tell my friends like here in Germany and like in other places is that like, it's like as bad as the German government is like as, and there are many things that one could critique. Uh, um, like I think a lot of people on the left in the United States, if we woke up and we sort of magically were in a, like, and, and America was like Germany. Like, I think that like most of the left would like, at least be like, we're going to sleep now for five years. Like, fuck, we did it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I often have to give that 
argument in reverse when we were talking about with the primaries, you know, some people were like, oh, this person's very progressive or, or that person is very left-leaning as far as a presidential candidate. And I'm like, Bernie Sanders himself is kind of like my compromise. And I think a lot of the left felt that way. But I'm saying anybody else, you put them in any other country in Europe or even like parts of Asia or anywhere else, and they want to enact the same plans that they want to enact here, you'd have to roll back whatever those countries have totally to give you an idea <laughs> of where they are in the global political spectrum. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that like, you know, and as I, you know, I, I played, you know, like I opened up for Bernie, you know, like he's the only presidential candidate that I've ever given money to, you know, like, uh, and actively like really, you know, like advocated for. Was that the beginning of your fans getting upset at you? No, no. Um, so, you know, I've always been a person who was on the left very safely, but like I, I chose to be very quiet about it. Like other than like what I would talk about in my lyrics, you know, um, I wouldn't make like political posts like up until it was 2015 and like I was on my health journey and the debate about the Confederate flag came up. And like the day that I chimed in on the Confederate flag is the day that I lost the most fans in my entire career <laughs> as an artist. Like, and like, I think I literally lost like a thousand fan like followers on that day. Just for the Confederate flag. Yeah. Well, just saying like, it doesn't matter what the fuck you think it is. It's about what other people think. Yeah. You know, I was like, it's about what other people see, you know, like I was like, I'm a person of Jewish descent. When I see a swastika, even if it's the reverse side, you know, like swastika, you know what I mean? Like I immediately go to that place. It immediately upsets me. And I know that like, you know what I mean? Like when the swastika is reversed, it's not that, you know what I mean? Like, but it still makes me be upset, you know, like. And I have to think to myself, like, oh, that's not what that means. N like, every time anybody sees a Confederate flag who isn't pro-Confederate flag, they immediately think of these things. It immediately does harm. You know, like, I was like, can't you just say, hey, this is hurting other people and be like, oh, maybe I'm just going to pack this away now. You know, like, and people were pissed. I mean, yeah. So you weren't even like pointing the finger at them saying like, oh, you're a racist if you like this flag. You were trying to speak to their empathy. Totally. I'm not calling you a racist. Just think about the feelings of others, right? Totally. I mean, like, and that was like a stance that I've, I mean, I've predominantly taken that stance in most of my political posts, you know, like over the years. And I, and I, like, I stand, I stand by that. I mean, there are times when I do get fucking like shitty with chuds, you know, like, but like overall, you know what I mean? Like I try to appeal to people's humanity more than anything else. You don't try to judge them. You just try to speak to their inner humanity. Totally. Like, I don't, you know, you know, I'm not, I don't believe that I'm better than anybody else. There are times when those kinds of thoughts like go through my head, but you know, like my entire like political discourse with myself and my emotional discourse with myself is like one of like, of healing. And like, uh, you know, like my story is like in a lot of ways, like redemptive, you know, like I, like, you know, like I was, you know, badly in the trenches of like self-indulgence and abuse, like, and like, and I lost everything, like my entire career, my record label, my manager, my booking agent, like everything. I lost all of it. 
You know what I mean? Like, and I like had to put my whole entire life back together. And part of that was like getting healthy. You know, I mean, I lost a hundred and, you know, like 30 pounds, you know what I mean? Like, and like went from being like a, you know, a dude sitting in the back of a van, you know, being miserable to like being a Muay Thai coach. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, (laughs) you know, like something that like a lot of people, can't do. And like, and I know that like how hard it was for me. So like, I don't look at somebody else and be like, come on, you could totally do this, bro. What the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, look at you. You're, you look like shit. You know what I mean? Like I look at other people and I'm like, man, you're going through a fucking hard ass time. You know, like even people who are reacting like negatively, like, I mean, I, I learn how to fight so that I can deal with people who are like acting violently towards people that I care about or to people who are helpless or to myself so that I can deal with them. But I don't do it because I intend on attacking them and harming them. You know what I mean? Like, like for me, it's just like about like, it's about defense and about confidence, you know? So like, you know, when other people come at me on like social media or when I talk about things on social media, like I'm usually trying to appeal to other people's humanity because like, I know how human it is to like be wrong about something. I know how hard it is to admit that I'm wrong about something, you know, like, and like, I do want to provide some amount of space for people to like, be able to like come back from that. You know, like, I mean, one of my best friends like has gone down a very upsetting, hyper-masculine, like fascist, you know, like path. And like, even when I saw him going down it, like, I didn't call him up and say, hey, fuck you, you fucking piece of shit. I was like, hey, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, I can't be your friend anymore if you keep on doing this. I mean, you know, if we were to shift gears and continue on this, like this sort of thread, this speaks to my personal politics, because like, I'm really more of like, you know, I've become more of an assemblage politics adherent. Like, and like, you know, the way that I look at it with like my martial arts journey is the same way that I look at it with like my musical journey and like with my political journey. And that is that like, I'm not better than you. I'm not better than anybody else. Nobody is better than me. Nobody is better than anybody else. I might know some things that you don't know. Come over here if you want to learn them. I'm more than happy to teach them to you. You know, like, uh, you know, like two weeks ago, I offered up to write songs for fans for Christmas. And like, you know, people were like, how much? And I was like, it's sliding scale. If you have, you know, like 20 bucks, I'll write you a song for your loved one for Christmas. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, like some people paid 10. Some people couldn't give me anything. And I still wrote them the song. You know, some people paid 200. For me, it's like, this is the thing I do, and I would love to survive by doing it. But like, you know, if you want this, I'm not going to like, be a gatekeeper and let the economics of the thing like keep you away from it. And like, and that's how I am with like, with martial arts and with everything else, because like, I want to live in a like society where it's cooperative, where like, we can all gain things from each other and bring joy to each other's lives. Like when I coach people, like I do it because like, I want it to bring like joy to their life. Like I want to help them, you know, like I want them to feel more confident 
because I know how much more confident I feel. Like I know how much safer I feel being able to like, just like give that to somebody else is like, to me, the most fucking important thing in the whole entire world, because I've managed to like make their life, like their day-to-day, like walking around a little bit less difficult. And like, I know what it's like to walk around with like serious anxiety and like fear of abuse, you know, like, and you know, like, yeah, I'm a man and like, and everything, but like, you know, I, I am pansexual and like, I've been called a faggot my whole entire life by different people. And like, you know, like I've, you know, uh, I'm also a person of Jewish descent who grew up in a rural area with hardly any Jews. You know what I mean? Like, like I've had cigarettes flicked at me and I've been sucker punched, you know, like in the hallway at school, you know what I mean? Like, and called a kike and a dirty Jew. And like, you know, like I know what it's like to like live with serious fear and like, you know, coming out of having that fear, like becoming a person who has some skill as a martial artist, at least enough to be able to like impart some of that knowledge to someone else, like becomes like, I don't know. It's like, it, it has almost become like my like place of joy to watch other people come into that place and start to like have their eyes open and feel a lot more comfortable in general. Um, so like, yeah, I don't know. Like, so like I said, the way I look at it is that I just do what I can to help some people learn a thing that I might be a little bit better at that than they are right now. And hopefully at some point they're going to see something wonky about my cross or my guard and say, Hey, like you should change (laughs) this around and like, this will help you out. I found that this helps. If you don't want to wait for part two, it's available now on Patreon. South pulse hitting with the left South pulse. Sam Paul South Paul South Paul